Well, hey, welcome everybody. It is great to have you here with us today. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible today, raise your hand and one of our ushers very, very soon will come with a Bible and hook you up with one. You'll find 2 Timothy 3 in our Bibles on page 996. It's going to be a little bit further towards the back of your Bible. Uh, my name's Chad. I'm the pastor of student ministry here. If you're a guest with us for the first time, Welcome. We are so glad to have you here with us today. Welcome to the Shelter Cove family. Before we get going today, I just need to say a big, big thank you to all the people that helped put this auction on. Uh, so Clinton and Amanda Adams, Cody and Shelly Walker, Loray Walker, Donna Michaelis, uh, Cheryl Oliveira, Diane Giles. There's others that I'm sure I'm forgetting, but they were instrumental in making all that stuff come together. So if you see them, give them a big hug, say thank you. They put a lot of work into that. Now, we're in a series right now called Impact. This is our word for 2017. We want to see God have an impact in us and in the people around us. We pulled this idea right out of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says, now to him who's able to do abundantly, who's able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. So last week, Jeremy gave a sermon on the impact of the Holy Spirit, which is a huge, huge topic. And he did it with a lot of clarity and a lot of real life application. So if you missed that sermon, check it out in the Media Resource Center, find it online. That sermon is really kind of the pinnacle of all the stuff that we're talking about that the Holy Spirit of God renews and changes and makes us into brand new creations. Today we look at the impact of healthy relationships, and this also is a huge, massive topic. I mean, there's probably five or six different sermons that we could do under the umbrella of healthy relationships, but rather what we're going to do today is kind of paint in some broad strokes. We're not going to quite get down into the nitty-gritty of all different kinds of relationships. What we're going to do is look at some biblical principles that will really apply across the board to whatever relational circumstance you find yourself in. Now, we wanted to spend some time on relationships because as we were thinking and praying through this sermon series, what we started to realize, and maybe this will be the same for you, that's, that probably 80 to 90% of all the drama, the stress, the difficulty of life, all the stuff that sort of zaps our spiritual vitality, we found 80 to 90% of that stuff centered around relationships, like it's centered around people. So, the stuff that's stressful at work, I mean, isn't it 80, 90% of the time have to do with someone at work? The, the problems in family, the problems in our relationships, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, I mean, people are what complicate things and people are what seem to suck the vitality, the spiritual vigor out of us. And so if we're gonna make an impact in any way, shape or form, we're gonna need to learn how to navigate healthy relationships. There was a pastor that said the church would be a perfect place if nobody showed up. It would just be wonderful if nobody showed up because that's true. When you throw people into the mix, it gets complicated. So how do we have healthy relationships? Second Timothy chapter three is gonna help us. This is a text that a lot pastors probably don't go to when they talk about healthy relationships, it's a little bit abrasive. I'm warning you up front. It's a little bit rough around the edges, but it's going to share a truth with us that is very, very important. It's a truth that I bet every single one of you have up in your brains, but I bet every single one of you have maybe lost track of it in your heart. 
And so this text is going to share this truth with us, and then it's going to point us onto the path of how we fix relationships, of how we work our way through them, all right? Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read 2 Timothy chapter 3? We'll pick it up in verse 1 and go through verse 5. Paul, writing to his young protege, Timothy, says these words, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Let's pray. God, please help us now. God, please give us eyes to, eat, eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, please uh, illuminate the text. God, illuminate the scripture now to us that we might not know it in just an intellectual, compartmentalized way, Lord, but it would get down into our hearts and it would begin to soften and rework and rewire our hearts, God, that this would really change how we see things, how we handle things. Um, so Lord, please do that now. Please accomplish that now. For your beautiful name, I pray, amen. You may be seated. The first point in your notes reads like this, relationship difficulty is unavoidable. It is just unavoidable. There is no way of getting around relationship difficulty. It is going to hit us no matter how we live our lives. Relationship difficulty is unavoidable. This was a lesson that I learned fairly early on in my life because I grew up with two other brothers, okay? I'm the middle child of, of two other brothers. God bless my mother. She raised three boys. Um, I learned this lesson pretty early, and one instance stands out in particular. It was probably uh, about 1997, 1998, right, right around there somewhere. And I went into the bathroom early one morning, um, and as I walked into the bathroom, what I noticed on the, over the toilet bowl was like on, on, the, on the fray, like on the edge of it, uh, there was like crinkled up saran wrap. And, and as I looked like over the toilet seat, I could see like the indentations and like the, the kind of sag of this saran wrap. I immediately knew this is the work of my little brother. This has my little brother, his name written all over it. So I walk out of the bathroom, go to his room, and sure enough, he's kind of in his room, like, listening to see what happens. I'm like, Brandon, did you put saran wrap over the toilet? He, I don't know what you're talking about. Come on, dude. Now, I'm at, a, I'm at a crossroads here where I can either do the mature thing, just pull it off the toilet, throw it away, or I can help my younger brother and we can prank my older brother. I think you know which one I chose. So I'm like, Brandon, we got to find scissors, man. You did this totally ghetto. Let me show you how to do this, all right? So we pulled the saran wrap tight, pulled it tight around the bowl so you couldn't see it, put the toilet seat down, and then we cut with scissors, like right up to the top of the toilet bowl, all the like edges of the saran wrap so you couldn't see it at all. And then we just waited. And my older brother, Wes, walks in there, and sure enough, you know what happened. Uh, he all of a sudden is in there and he just screams at the top of his lungs, Brandon! And my brother goes booking it down the hallway and the best part of this whole story is that I didn't get caught at all. Like my brother totally thought it was my younger brother, got away from this scot-free. Um, but the truth is when you mix one sinner with another sinner, you, you make them do life together, you don't get peace and harmony. You get 
friction, you get conflict. And what Paul is telling Timothy here is that he wants Timothy to understand something. He wants it to get it in his head and, and down into his heart. He says to Timothy, understand this, that in the last days there will, there will be times of difficulty. So the question is, when are the last days? What does that even mean? If you read through the New Testament, you will see that this phrase, last days, or this generation, there are two different phrases to say the same thing, refers to the time of Christ's ascension back into heaven and his second coming. That time span, that period of time, are the last days. So you and I are living right now in the last days. Paul and Timothy were living in the last days. I don't want to get all, you know, revelation and apocalyptic on you, but we are living in the last days. If anyone comes to you and says, they know when Jesus is coming, they know the date of his return, I'm going to spoil the surprise. No, they don't. No, they don't. They're lying. And they're probably trying to get your money. They're lying. Cults have done this for hundreds of years for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Bible's very clear. We do not know when Jesus is going to return. We can spot some signs, but we don't know the definitive date, okay? We are living in the last times, and Paul says to Timothy, for people, for people, they're gonna be like this. And he lists off 19 different characteristics. Now, because we're church folk, the temptation might be for us to go, well, well that's people outside the church, those are the unbelievers, those are the skeptics, those are the atheists outside the church. This doesn't apply to us. But the problem with that understanding of the passage is that the word that's used here for people in the Greek is mankind. It literally translates to mankind. So guess what? We fall into that. And keep in mind, this is a letter to a young pastor. Paul's writing to a young pastor going, here's how I want you to do church. Find leaders that have, this, have these qualities. Teach the Bible in this way. Handle conflict in this way. So Paul's writing this to a guy whose job is vocational ministry. He deals with church folk. So yes, this will be outside the church, but the characteristics we just read will be inside the church as well. And the first one, that's get, the first one that gets listed off here, the first characteristic says, people will be Lovers of self. And really every other point that comes after this is just a footnote. It's just a, an extrapolation, a further explanation of this first point. We're gonna be lovers of self. We will glorify and idolize ourselves at the expense of God and at the expense of every other person. We are more important than anything and anyone else. We will be lovers of self. And so everything else just flows from this. Well, of course, lovers of money becomes next because money serves our own needs. Of course, we become proud and arrogant because I'm better than you. Of course, we become abusive. Of course, we become ungrateful, disobedient, unholy because it's all about me. Now, I wanna show you how modern scholarship, modern academia is actually proving what the Bible's been saying for thousands of years here. Um, psychology Today, an online psychology magazine, published an article, and they found this. From 2002 to 2007, college students' scores on the narcissistic personality inventory. So they call this the NPI. It's a test to measure narcissistic attitudes, self-centered attitudes. They found from 2002 to 2007, college students' scores on this test rose twice as fast as they had found in an earlier study that covered changes between 1982 and 2006. 
So in five years, the scores doubled over what they measured in 24 years. They continued on to say that narcissistic tendencies are growing at an exponential rate. Jonathan McKee, who is a researcher, writer, speaker, started writing about the cultural impact of selfies. And what he talked about was that across the globe, across the globe on any given day, there are roughly 93 million selfies taken every single day. And he said, most people will take three to seven selfies before they get the one that they want. And then once they get the one that they want, they spend five to seven minutes editing, enhancing, and tweaking the picture to make it look just how they want. And he doesn't go, hey, if you do selfies, you're a sinner. I'm not saying that either. I take selfies sometimes when my wife forces me to. But he asks the question, is this indicative? Is this indicative of something profound happening in the human heart? A level of self-interest, a hyper-inflated narcissism that the world has never seen before. Is this indicative of something that's coming a few years down the road that we should be avoiding? He just wonders, he just asks the question. It certainly seems like we are, we are trending in a way towards self-interest, self-glorification, loving ourselves at the expense of anyone and anything else. All the other points here, just footnotes. Footnotes to this self-glorification, this self-worship. And rather than spending time unpacking every single one of these points, what I want to do is move us now to the next question. Because if relationship conflict is unavoidable, if it's absolutely unavoidable, but I mean, think about this real quick. Like Jesus himself had relationship conflict. The perfect son of God had relational problems. His brothers hated him. His best friend betrayed him and the other 11 abandoned him. Death threats constantly throughout his earthly ministry, constantly fighting against the religious elite. If he had relational problems, we're going to have relational problems. And I just want to camp here because, man, I'm afraid that, that you and I know this intellectually, but we lost it in our heart. Because I have conversations with people that go like this, Chad, I don't understand why my marriage is falling apart. I don't understand, like, we did everything right. We prayed, we went to church together, we did devotionals together. I don't understand. I don't understand why that guy at work is getting the promotion and I'm not. He's a scumbag, man. He's a liar. I've done everything right. I worked hard, I showed up on time, I've been honest, and he's getting the promotion. And what's underneath that stuff is the assumption that if we follow Jesus, he's gonna do everything we want him to do. He's gonna make life exactly how we want him to make it. And the Bible just never promises that. The Bible does promise conflict's gonna come. The Bible does promise trouble is going to come, but Jesus will be enough through it all. That's what the Bible promises. It guarantees we're gonna have hard times. It guarantees we're gonna butt heads with people. But the perpetual promise of the scriptures is that I'm Jesus and I'm enough, I'll guide you through this. So the question then becomes, how do we walk through this? How do we navigate through relational difficulties? The second point in your note says this. We navigate relationship difficulty by following God's word. 
I wanted to say in your notes here, I wanted to put in parentheses, we navigate relationship difficulty, parentheses, and everything else, and everything else, close parentheses, by following God's word. I probably should have put it in there, but for whatever reason, I forgot to put it in there. This is the mark of a true, mature man or woman in Christ. They have ordered their lives according to the counsel of God's word. They have ordered their steps. They've ordered their lives to what the word of God says. Now, I want you to see how Paul unpacks this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Pick it up with me in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, but as for you, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, how much scripture? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul just told Timothy, his young protege, this young pastor, Timothy, it's gonna get bad. People are gonna hate you. It doesn't matter how good of a pastor you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are. They're going to fight you. You're gonna have relational conflict. Here's what you do. Point people to the word of God. Show them the word of God. Mold your own life by the word of God. It's profitable. It'll teach you. It'll correct you. It'll encourage you. It will equip you for every good work you need to know. Point them to the word of God. And then Paul makes this outlandish statement that the Bible is breathed out by God. Some of your translations may say that it was inspired by God. So what that means is that the men who wrote the Bible didn't come up with it on their own. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit telling them, here's what you write. Write this down, say this, say that. I mean, do you honestly think man would write this book? We just read a passage that spent five verses telling us all how much we stink. Who do you know would write that? Because the people I know love to self-glorify and love to make themselves look better than they really are. And this text just said, no, 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 you're not that great. <laughs> no, you, you love yourself, you're proud, you're arrogant, you're abusive. No, you, you have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. I would never write that. Paul says, this is breathed out by God. Now it used to be in older, and maybe 30, just 30 or 40 years ago, it used to be the fact that people would accept that at face value. But sociologists, theologians, pastors are noticing a shift in church attenders, a shift in the mindsets of Christians now that is going from modern to what they call postmodern. And what that means is that people are bringing into sanctuaries like this heightened levels of skepticism and doubt that was never there before. So that means when I make a statement like the Bible is the word of God, it's breathed out by God. It used to be, okay, I buy that. Uh, uh, I can get behind that. Now it's, wait a minute. I've been taught in school to doubt things. I've been taught in school to be suspect of these certain things. And hear me, I'm not saying that that's a total bad thing. I think a healthy level of skepticism is good, but I think we should be skeptical about our skepticism. I think we should be careful in how far we take that. I think at the end of the day, we gotta look at what the evidence is saying and make a decision. 
So when I tell you the word of God is authoritative, when I tell you that this book is worthy to be in authority over our lives, that this book is worthy to call the shots, this book is worthy to be the overarching voice in our life, that used to land pretty well, but I'm worried some of you might be going, wait a minute, I've heard this, I've heard that, I'm not sure I can trust that. So I wanna spend just a couple of minutes saying why I'm convinced to the core of my being that this book we read, the book you hold in your hands, is without a doubt the inspired word of God. That it's not one book amongst many, it's not one self-help book amongst many, it's not one religious text amongst many. What I'm telling you is that this book stands apart. I'm making an exclusive claim that this book has truth And it has truth on a level no other book has. That this book can point you towards the one true savior. So why am I convinced of that? First and foremost, these aren't in your notes. You can write them down if you want. But the historical and the archaeological evidence of the Bible is mind-blowing. I've been to Israel twice. I've put my hands. I've seen it. I've touched the stuff that we can read about. In fact, there were two secular archaeologists. If you study archaeology at all, you'll know these names. William F. Albright and Nelson Gluick. They said this about the Bible. Not believers. They're not Christians. They said the Bible is, single-handedly, the most accurate source document we have from history. The archaeological and historical evidence, it's real people, real places, real times, and we can fact check it with outside historical sources, and we can go dig in the ground and find where they were talking about. We can see it. This isn't mythology. Secondly, the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence of the Bible is almost comical. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. No other ancient text, secular or religious, has anywhere close to the manuscript evidence that the Bible has. The works of Homer, the works of Shakespeare, the works of Plato are maybe 50, 60, maybe a couple hundred. The Bible enjoys over 5,000 manuscripts. And what that means is we can look back to the first century, beyond the first century, and see what they were reading thousands of years ago is exactly what we're reading today. Even though it's been translated into English, the content is exactly the same. Do you know the only substantial differences they've been able to find? Differences in punctuation and abbreviations. That's it. No change in doctrine, no change in theology, no change in the overall message at all. And last but not least, I'm convinced to the core of my being that this book is supernatural because of prophecy. Now, a lot of us may have a hard time with that word prophecy. Because what comes to mind are maybe some cults and maybe like some weird people off in the woods doing some weird religious stuff. That word's kind of been hijacked. But I have no natural accounting for the prophecies in the Bible. I can't explain it by natural ways. I just can't. Like, I'll give you some examples. Um, Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 predicts that Jesus is gonna be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 11.1 predicts that even though he'll be born in Bethlehem, he's gonna be called a Nazarite. And we still say to this day, do we not? Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah 53. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove that Isaiah 53 is written at least 250 years before Jesus showed up. Most scholars will tell you it's about 700 years. Isaiah 53, that the Messiah will be pierced for our transgressions. 
He'll be pierced. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus showed up, predicts that the Messiah's clothes are gonna be gambled for while he's dying on the cross. Now I chose those, those prophecies in particular because they're fulfilled independent of Jesus's direct involvement. What I mean by that is Jesus didn't look at the Bible and go, oh, well, I could fulfill that and trick people into thinking I'm the Messiah. They're fulfilled independent of his direct action. I got no way of accounting for that. I can't explain how that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago and fulfilled directly in his life. And I just mentioned to you like four. Look at me, there's hundreds I could play this game with you for days, man. There's hundreds of these prophecies. I got no way of explaining that away. So it seems to me when Paul says this book is God-breathed, God-inspired, he wasn't trying to trick us. He was just telling the truth. And because it is the direct word of God, breathed out, it's worthy to be an authority over us. So you need to know here at Shelter Cove, we will hold the Bible above us. We're gonna hold this book in authority over us and we're gonna use it to guide our steps towards his ways. Now you may be thinking, okay, Chad, I'm not sure how this relates to healthy relationships. Help me connect the dots. I, I wanna do that now. We just said that we need to navigate relationship difficulties by the word of God. And I just wanted to lay the case before you why the word of God is reliable. So now the question is, and it's the next point in your notes, well, what does the word say? And I wanna share with you three biblical principles for healthy relationships. Now there's way more than just three there's tons of them, tons and tons, but we're only gonna do three today. And once again, these are gonna be kind of broad. These are gonna try to uh, apply to all kinds of different relational circumstances. The first one in your notes says this, look out for lumber. Look out for lumber. In Matthew chapter seven, near the back, <clears throat> back end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains some very, very profound wisdom for us. We're gonna throw this text up on the screen. Here's what Jesus says. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Don't you love how gentle Jesus is? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. For me, whenever I read this passage, it's one of the more comical passages. The truth is very, very heavy. Don't get me wrong. But I just can't help but chuckle a little bit when I read this because the word picture is comical. What Jesus is talking about is this guy who's got a log just sticking right out of his face. And he sees a little speck of sawdust. Oh, dude, you got sawdust in your eye? Come here, come here. I can't believe you would let sawdust get in your eye. I would never let sawdust get in my eye. I, I know how to do better than that. I can't believe you would let that happen total hypocrisy and it's just comical but it's important for us to know it's important for us to let this bear its weight on us because when conflict happens when we got kind of get started getting fired up and we've had a hard conversation or there's been some there's been some aggressive talk that's gone and we're starting to get up into the red there's a very sobering calming effect of us just self-reflecting first of us looking out for our own lumber. God, this person is ticking me off. But am I wrong anywhere? God, I, I am heated. But Lord, is there any hypocrisy? Is there anything in my life that I'm doing that's off? 
And hear me, nine times out of 10, yes, there's something there. Occasionally there won't be. Occasionally there won't be. But my mom used to say it like this, it takes two to tango. It takes two to fight, man. So nine times out of 10, there will be something there. And there's just a calming, sobering effect to this. What it does is it just kind of cools the spirit down. The Proverbs say that a, man, a, a foolish man gives full vent to his anger. The foolish man doesn't think how to respond. He just flies off at the handle. The Proverbs go on to say that a wise man, a man of understanding, has a cool spirit. I love that. I love that picture. And this kind of just slows us down a little bit. It pumps the brakes a little bit. Whoa, whoa God, is there, is there anything wrong in my life? Second principle. Second principle says this, lovingly confront one another. Lovingly confront one another. Once again, Jesus is going to give us some very, very wise, wise words to live by. Here's what he says in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What Jesus explained here is that when somebody has sinned against us, the proper response is to speak to them face to face. Now, human behavior is unbelievably predictable. 99.9% .9 of the times what we do is avoid that person, let bitterness grow in our heart, gossip about them to everybody else, and get passive aggressive every single time we see them. And Jesus says, no, that's not the proper response. You go to them, you speak to them face to face. Why face to face? Because when you speak to somebody face to face, you are reminded that they're a person, that they are a soul. So text messaging is great, email is great, Snapchat great. Horrible, horrible mediums to have confrontation on. Because it's real easy to have bravo and swagger when you're behind a keyboard, but when you speak to somebody face to face, you're reminded that's a person. That's a man or woman made in God's image. They deserve dignity, even though they've hurt me. So God says, have those conversations face to face. Don't hide behind a keyboard. Don't hide behind your phone. And if that doesn't work, if you have that conversation face to face and they do not repent, they're still angry, still hard-hearted towards you, then bring in a couple other people to help mediate, to help make sure the conversation goes okay. And if that doesn't work, then you take it to the authority of the church. The church has been given, it's been delegated authority by God to handle these spiritual disputes amongst brothers, amongst sisters. Now the question then arises, well, what if my conflict is with a non-believer? Do I still bring him to the church? That would be kind of foolish because they're not believers. They're not under the authority of the church or under the authority of Jesus Christ. So how does that then apply? Well, you take it to whatever authority is applicable for that context. If it's somebody at work, you take it to a supervisor, take it to a boss. Maybe you have to get a professional mediator in there, a lawyer of some sorts. 
but you bring it to some authority. And if after it's taken to a high authority and they still refuse to repent, still refuse to ask for forgiveness, then the Bible's clear that we're to treat them as if they're a Gentile or tax collector. So Jesus is speaking to Jewish people here and they did not associate with Gentiles or tax collectors. Doesn't that feel kind of harsh? It might feel a little bit harsh, but, but here's what the Bible will also say. That bad company corrupts good morals. That we're not to throw our pearls before swine, lest they trample on them and turn and attack us. That there's an element where we reach out to others, we seek reconciliation, we try to be at peace with everyone, but that's a two-way street. And if they're refusing to live at peace, then we simply leave them be in their refusal to be at peace. The final point here in your notes says this, forgive. We are to forgive. It's no coincidence that right after Jesus gives this long expose on what it means to confront one another, lovingly confront them, he then follows up with forgiveness. So here's what our passage says. It's verse 21 and 22 out of chapter 18. Gotta love Peter. If you read this, you can kind of sense Peter's Peter's bravado, thinking that he has the right answer here. Here's what he says. Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Uh, Jesus, what do you think? Pretty good answer. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations will say 70 times seven. However you slice that passage, the, the principle's pretty clear. Forgive a lot. Be quick to forgive. And then Jesus tells a parable right after this. Masterful storyteller. Man, Jesus could tell a story like nobody's business. He tells this parable of a servant who owed his master tens of millions of dollars. He owed his master an amount that he would never be able to pay off. I mean, the servant works a minimum wage job. Never, no matter how much overtime, would he be able to cover this debt. And finally, the master one day says, it's time to pay up. You owe me. The servant can't pay. The servant falls before the master, says, I can't pay. Please have mercy on me. Please. The master says, no, I'm sorry. You owe me this money. And he can't pay it, so the master tells the servant, I have to sell you, I have to sell your wife, and I'm gonna have to sell your kid. And I'm only gonna, I'm only gonna make a fractional amount of what you truly owe me, but I'm gonna have to sell all of you off. And the servant pleads once again, no, please, please, you can't do that, please, not my family. And the master has pity on the servant. That's what the text says. He has pity on the servant. He has mercy on the servant. He says, you know what? Your debt has been wiped clean. It's gone. You've asked for mercy. I am a merciful master. It's gone. And the servant leaves with a huge smile glued to his face. I mean, this heavy, heavy weight on his shoulders has been removed. The dark cloud over him is gone. He's walking down the street with an extra skip in his giddy up. And he finally sees this guy who owes him a couple hundred bucks. And he's like, we'll call him Bill. Bill! Get over here, Bill. And he runs over to Bill and he starts choking Bill out. Bill, you owe me $300. And the other servants, the other servants see what happened. And they go back to the master and they say, didn't you pardon that guy tens of millions of dollars? He goes, yeah, I did. 
Like, well, he's choking poor Bill out over a couple hundred bucks. And the master calls the servant back. And what the master says to the servant has haunted my heart in a really good, godly way. He tells the servant, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant the way I had mercy on you? And then Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brother from the heart, neither will my father forgive you. Why? Because those that have truly received forgiveness are able to give it back. Those who have really been forgiven know just how much they've been forgiven. And we don't hold that tightly. So I love when I preach on forgiveness because I always see a couple looks in the crowd and they always look like this. Listen, man, you can try to be macho and hard all you want. Your bitterness and your anger is only killing you. It's only hurting you. You're not hurting the other person by being all ticked off. That's only hurting you. You're a fool for holding on to it. You're a fool, man. Forgive, it liberates you. It frees you up. It's healing for your soul. You're only poisoning yourself by holding on to all that bitterness and holding on to all that resentment. You're not punishing the other person. You're just punishing yourself. Jesus calls us to forgive. If we've been forgiven much, we need to extend forgiveness much. And and listen, the Bible said that we are all kind of a wreck. So we're gonna have to do this a lot. Doing life with people in church is oftentimes more difficult than doing life with unbelievers. It's gonna cause cause us to have, have to give a lot of grace, to give a lot of forgiveness but it's what we're called to. We're called to forgive in the same way we've been forgiven. The last point in your notes says this, which principle principle do you need to put into action this week? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Father, I wanna thank you for the finished and perfect work of Jesus. And I pray now, Lord, that by his grace, you would teach us how to have healthy relationships. By your word, would you teach us how to have healthy relationships, God? God, make us aware of our own hypocrisy. Make us aware of our own blind spots. Show that stuff to us, God. As painful as it might be, show it to us. Give us the courage, God, to lovingly confront one another, to not be cowardly and hide, but to talk face-to-face with our brothers and our sisters and even those that are outside your fold, God, even those that don't know you. And Lord, please, by your grace, help us to forgive Help us to be a people that are quick to extend forgiveness because you have forgiven us extravagantly. You've lavished forgiveness on us. May we follow your example and give it to others. I thank you for the time that we've had here today, Lord. Help us now in Christ's name, amen.